if we had the ability to uh, to roll out a Patreon of the uh, unrecorded, the cutting room floor conversations of the show before the show podcast, we'd have some pretty entertaining stuff. And uh, that's how we welcome you into this week's episode of the show before the show by telling you all the fun stuff that you missed before we started recording. Hi, everybody. Welcome into the uh, latest edition of the official podcast of Minor League Baseball. My name is Tyler Mon. Sam Dykstra and Benjamin Hill are in New York City. Hello, fellas. We've already Hello, had, Tyler. Uh, already had some fun. Um, yeah, if you're going to tease what we were talking about off mic, I guess I'll tease it a little bit on mic. Like we were just looking at the Marvel logos and having a professional. chat. Yeah. What? Yeah. I said that's because you're the professional. Right. So that's right. good. Well, it's it's something people will get to listen to in right. some form. Right. Uh, we're going to be not doing day. Yeah. Longtime listeners might remember we did a hat draft in the past. That was a lot of fun. Got a lot of engagement from that. So we're bringing back a draft of the Marvel logos uh, next week for your holiday listen. We'll come out with that right before Thanksgiving. You can take it with you on your travels. Uh, we were bantering a little bit about some of the logos. Not yeah. all of them are out right now, but they will be tomorrow, November 18th. You'll be able to purchase stuff on that date. Um, but yeah, we are probably going to reveal a little bit about our own personalities and preferences <laughs> in who true. we take next week. So I'm That's really looking true. forward to that. Um, but yeah, Ben, what do you, I, I feel like I already know your first pick. We haven't, we haven't established <laughs> a draft order yet. And no. Tyler, I don't know if we want to spoil Ben's pick, but yeah, I think we gotta, we gotta leave it. As, we got uh, it. We got it. This is just another tease for another tease. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. We, uh, we can't, we can't cut into next week's, the anticipation of next week's. Right draft yeah, just build it up build it yeah. up but Plus, yeah you know we are never anything less than our true selves here on this podcast but yet we all contain multitudes so there are some aspects of ourselves that don't really make it to air yeah and i do wish i could full uh show the fullest version of myself on this podcast sometimes just in the deep range of opinions and the complexity of just being alive but you know we're talking about minor league baseball we got to keep it tight and uh that's okay He's not and there's still a long off season ahead. So there is deep recesses of our brains. We'll get into come yeah. January. We get so much more existential over the off season. Well, we don't have anything to distract us from, uh, you know, the, the cold uh, onset of winter and time. Am I right? Uh, so that dark intro into the show before the show, a big welcome into this week's episode. You can get in touch with us, podcast at MILB.com. You can find Ben on Twitter at Ben's Biz. Sam is at Sam Dykstra, MILB. I am a Tyler Ron. Let us know your uh, your questions, your thoughts, your comments, your concerns. Uh, and let's kick things off with a news item of note from minor league baseball, which is uh, a very cool news item. A local ownership group has emerged to purchase the San Antonio Missions, who will, uh, for the first time since the 1980s, be headed by local ownership, which is very cool. Longtime franchise owner Dave Elmore and the Elmore Group selling the San Antonio missions to a group of, uh, of buyers called designated bidders, LLC, B I D D E R S, which I very much enjoy uh, a bunch of local San Antonio business executives. They will also partner on this purchase um, with Ryan Sanders baseball, which is owned by uh, the families of Nolan Ryan, Reed Ryan and Don Sanders. Uh, they will join the designated bidders as owners and operators of the San Antonio missions going forward. Uh, this is cool. There has been 
so much um, kind of consternation about the future of ownership for uh, a lot of teams in minor league baseball and whether that's going to become super centralized in the hands of, of just a few owners or how it's going to look going forward. But Ben, this is a really cool step to not only have this team be purchased by a local group, but be purchased by a local group for the first time since the 80s. Yeah, and this is a franchise that's obviously been around for a very long time. And, you know, a team's named the Missions playing in San Antonio going back to the 19th century. Uh, so a lot of history in that city and obviously uh, an increasingly large market um, in minor league baseball, but just in the sports world at large. I mean, obviously they have an NBA team and uh, part of the ownership group are Spurs legends, David Robinson and uh, Manu Ginobili. I've never said his name out loud before. You got it. I got it. Yeah, yeah. yeah you Ginobili. nailed it. Manu Ginobili. Um, so that's a cool aspect as well. Um, but certainly, I think the biggest part of this purchase um, is the ballpark. And, you know, the press release makes a note of the, quote, ballpark issue. Um, but I think this ownership group coming in with all these people behind it is a pretty strong signifier that the push for a new ballpark for the missions is going to go into overdrive right now. They play at Nelson Wolf Stadium, the Wolf. Um, you know, it's in a comparatively isolated area. There's not really anything around it in terms of, uh, you know, other businesses, um, other things to do. Um, it was, it's over 30 years old and, um, you know, it's definitely showing its age. I was there this summer and uh, it's been you know, no secret for years that, you know, San Antonio, uh, you know, the, the, the team, you know, the affiliates uh, ownership group, you know, wanted a new ballpark and trying to make that happen. And now, you know, with, uh, you know, Major League Baseball and in, in more direct control of the minor leagues, uh, you know, there's uh, facility requirements that, you know, every team is. Um, trying to meet right now. And it's tough to look at the wolf and see that the amount of money that would have to be put into the stadium to bring it up to standards is probably not an investment you want to make um, given its age otherwise. And I think the path forward, especially in a huge market with like San Antonio is a new ballpark. So I would expect to see, you know, more and more news about the path towards a new ballpark for the missions. That's obviously a market that, uh, is a good one to operate in, especially if you had a new ballpark and not one that's old and a little bit out of the way. Uh, I think you could really, you know, potentially bring uh, San Antonio, you know, the missions baseball experience to a much broader audience with a, a newer ballpark in a more centralized location. So I think that's a big part of it. You know, the Elmore group has owned the team for years. Uh, if you remember the missions were part of that very complicated uh, series of maneuvers a few years back, where if I believe, if I can remember it right, all these teams in the Elmore group ownership the Helena Brewers moved to Colorado Springs, became the Vibes. The Colorado Springs Sky Sox, who had been there, moved to San Antonio, became a triple-A team for a number of seasons. And then the double-A San Antonio Missions moved to Amarillo. Then uh, the mission spent a couple years in AAA, and then with the reorganization of minor league baseball uh, prior to 2021, went back to double-A. So um, there's a been an aspect of the more things change, the more things stay the same in San Antonio with all that maneuvering around, changing affiliates. But now they're the double A affiliate of the Padres in the Texas League. Um, so that seems kind of normal after all these different maneuverings. Um, but yeah, I, I think that uh, a new ballpark is, is I don't want to say on the way because we've, <laughs> we've covered this through the years and a lot of the times, you know, uh, the path to a new ballpark is more complicated than it seems. I mean, just ask, uh, you know, the Richmond Flying Squirrels who moved to 
from Norwich, Connecticut, way back in what was that, 2009, under the uh, <laughs> under the uh, premise that we're getting a new ballpark. They still don't have one, and they kind of shoot themselves in the foot by being the top draw in the Eastern League. Uh, but that is still an ongoing process. So just seeing a new ownership group come in, have designs on a new ballpark. Um, sometimes it's easy to get a little ahead of yourself and be like, oh, awesome. I can't wait for that in a couple of years. Maybe in a couple of years, maybe in more than a couple of years. Uh, but obviously um, the, the uh, amount of people involved with this ownership group, the local connections, uh, Ryan Sanders coming in, you know, they operate Corpus Christi, uh, uh, Round Rock Express, other teams in Texas. You know, they are really adept at um you know, the, the business of minor league baseball and knowing, um, you know, how to proceed in these situations. Uh, you know, they got Round Rock Express completely off the ground uh, and Corpus Christi, you know, from places that didn't have baseball at all at the time and new ballparks and really successful franchises. So, um, yeah, and Manu Ginobili and David Robinson, um, you know, you've got some star power in there as well. So I think that goes a long way, uh, at least, you know, because if you Google it right now, you'll you'll see news headlines that say like David Robinson, you know, part of new ownership group. Um, you know, it's good to have those names in there because it just keeps it in the public eye even more. Yeah. And what can you tell us just generally, you know, you're talking about specifics with Wolf Stadium and, um, you know, the history, the recent history of the San Antonio missions. But what is the San Antonio market like for baseball? Yeah, I mean, I think right now they're not drawing, you know, commensurate with the size of the market and the amount of people who, you know, theoretically could get out the games. And a lot of that is the stadium. Uh, I forget the geography of the city exactly, but um, it is not, you know, anywhere near downtown. Um, if you're going to a game, you're only going to the game. It's not part of a larger San Antonio uh, experience. Um, and I think, you know, there's, as happens with older ballparks, then of course they have a large, dedicated fan base, a lot of military. There's several military bases in the area. So you almost always see a strong military presence of the game. Um, and, and just having baseball in that city for so long, they have a, a dedicated, you know, group of fans who are generational and, you know, who are now taking their families to game, having grown up go- going to uh, games themselves. So they've got a solid base, but given the growth of that market and um, even like a quasi major league market, when you look at the demographics, um, I think it is apparent that they need to be somewhere else. And, and, and just from a player development uh, level as well, I'm sure there's a lot of, uh, you know, improvements that need to be made, you know, internally in the guts and the locker rooms, um, all that kind of stuff that goes into it as well. Um, and when you go to the ballpark, it's, I, I like it. It's kind of quirky. It's laid out, you know, uniquely it's, it's on all, I don't know the acreage or the square footage, but there's a lot of land. There's a lot of room to move. Um, multi-levels kind of things jutting out at weird angles. I, I like it there, uh, but it definitely does not scream, um, you know, modern day minor league baseball experience uh, or in one of the largest markets that, that has minor league baseball. So you can read up on the San Antonio missions, new ownership story at MILB.com. And uh, Ben, other than that right now, it's kind of newsletter and ballpark guides time. Um, what's the, what's the update on, I know you're continuing to go through the ballparks that you've been to, especially this year. Uh, what's the update on that in the newsletter? Yeah. You know, it's not the most exciting thing in the world, but uh, it's nice to make progress on the ballpark guide project had St. Paul, uh, CHS field last week, uh, Tulsa's one Oak field ran last week and, uh, Wichita is done right now. It'll be up by the time this podcast is, uh, up and then, uh, working as well on Salem field 
uh, home of the Buffalo Bisons. So that proceeds apace. And the newsletter, um, really, really enjoy it. And if you're not subscribed, subscribe to it. Go to MILB.com. And then you'll see, you know, a menu. What do you call it? The top nav. Yeah. The, yeah. <laughs> yeah. The top, top navigation bar. The, the top navigation bar. It says scores and schedules, stats, standings, news, video, teams. And then there's three dots. Hover above those three dots and you'll see newsletter registration. Click on newsletter registration and make sure to register for, at the very least, my newsletter, the Ben's Biz Beat. Um, over the last couple of weeks, I've asked people about um, to share their favorite minor league books, and I got a great response on that. Have broken up the responses into a, a series of uh, newsletter editions, uh, three in a row, really. So it's been great to get those recommendations. Um, do you guys? Yeah, unfortunately, I did not receive your responses for inclusion in the newsletter. But um, do you guys, when you think about minor league baseball books, um, do you have any that that stand out to you that you've read through the years that, that really jump out? Or do you say, nah, we work in minor league baseball. My spare time is precious and I cannot read more about it. Um, hey, you, you, know what, you know what's strange is I feel like I read a lot of baseball books, but I don't read a lot of minor league baseball books, which seems probably odd given my... Uh, my chosen career field. Um, I did like, you know, whenever there's a story that's written by like a big leaguer, but they talk about their minor league time. Like I think in, in ball four, I think Jim Bowden spends, oh, I was going to say a ball decent four. amount of time talking about his minor league <laughs> yeah. days, which is cool. Yeah. Um, I remember Barry Zito's book. I, I uh, interviewed him for a story on MILB.com a few years ago about his time in the minor leagues, which was very short, but uh, then his time returning to the minor leagues and kind of playing that season in Nashville as part of his comeback when he was making it back to the A's. And um, so I, I kind of like those stories where it's like the, the people who have graduated, but give you the feeling of what it was like, you know, before they were, who you know them as. Um, I kind of like those things. But now I feel like I am, am neglecting my duty by not reading more minor league baseball specific kinds of books. I do have that book, Bottom of the 33rd, about the uh, the longest game in professional baseball history, um, which of course was an international league game between Pawtucket and Rochester. Rochester no, I was going to let him get it on his own. <laughs> 1982 or whenever it was, but I haven't read it. That's a great book. That's by Dan Barry, uh, who works in the New York Times, uh, Rhode Island guy. And uh, that's a really well done book because it, you know, tells the story of the game chronologically. But then, you know, say a certain player comes to bat in the game and then it, you know, zooms out and tells his story. And so it tells the story of all these different participants in the game, not just on the field, but, you know, in the broadcast booth, uh, in the front office, the very few diehards in the in the stands that that game is amazing. Um, that it went to something like four in the morning before finally, like the league president who they couldn't get in touch with finally got it. He was like, no, stop. Yeah, he, finally, <laughs> he finally answered the phone. It was just like, you idiots. Wait a minute. What are you doing this right now? Yeah. Yeah. And a crazy. So they postponed it at like four something in the morning on what was then Easter Sunday morning after 32 innings. And, um, you know, I know a lot of people know this history, but then they didn't. Um, that was in April at some point, and they didn't resume the game until later in the summer, several months later. And at that point, Major League Baseball, this is 1981, uh, was on strike. So the 33rd inning was like the biggest sports story, like in the country, because there's it's summer, the other sports really aren't going on, the major American sports, and there's no baseball because baseball's on strike. So, like, 
the national media descended upon Pawtucket's McCoy Stadium uh, for that exciting conclusion, which ended just the, and they only played. I was going to say, yeah, and they played like 15 minutes after yeah. after playing 32 innings earlier in the year. I had two favorite stories of that. One is the guy who walked off, and unfortunately, I can't remember his name now. I know Marty Barrett played a role in in, in the in the walk off. He might not have scored the run. Was it Dave Coza? I believe something, something like something. that. Yeah, um, but he was like on Good Morning America the next day. Like, because again, it's amazing. Became the star of athletics in the United States for and one day in a very different time than when you could just like, oh, I'll hop on Good Morning America tomorrow because you know it's easy to get in touch with anybody and do a video interview over Zoom or over Skype or over whatever. Like, that's a very different time to just like hop on Good Morning America the next day. Yeah, they had to send camera crews and do all this crazy stuff. Um, my other favorite part of that story is the Rochester broadcaster said, like, we're going to be doing tape of this whole game. And I think his wife was, like, back in the studio. And all they had left was, I want to say, either Frank Sinatra or Elvis tapes. So when you listen back to the audio, you can hear occasionally, like, some crooning just going on in the background because they (laughs) just recorded over it. They didn't have fresh tape left in the studio because they weren't expecting to go to 4 a.m. in the morning. Again, a very, very different time. Yeah, so it's very much a ghost in the tape of this historic broadcast. Having physical tape was like a finite resource. It wasn't just like, wow, we got the cloud and such. Uh, Well, now I got to read that book. Yeah, pull it out. That's a good one for sure. I'm I'm heading on a a trip today, uh, so I I may need some new reading material. but okay, those are those are some good ones. Uh, ben, who? What else have people uh, replied and sent in and suggested? Then uh, all over the place, and there's been some that I wasn't too familiar with. Like here, I'm looking at a last week's edition of the newsletter, and uh, here's a recommendation by a man named uh, what, what, who recommended this. I want to make sure I get his name right. Don Wiederect. Wiederect. I hope I'm getting your name right, Don. But he says, Owning a Piece of the Miners by Jerry Klinkowitz. It talks about his love of baseball and then his financial investment in the game with the Waterloo Diamonds. Huh. He did everything he could to promote the team and deal with the changing world of minor league baseball. Those are the kind of recommendations I like, this sort of you know on-the-ground account of you know owning the Waterloo Diamonds. That's yeah. a good one. Uh, another one that, that that same individual, Don, um, recommended, and this is one that I – Weirdly, I've not read because I've read a lot of minor league books through the years, often writing about them. And this one comes up a lot, but I never read it. A False Spring by Pat Jordan. Um, and that, you know, Pat Jordan was in the minor leagues and it's kind of a more ball four style, you know, warts and all account of uh, scra- scraping by in the minor leagues, you know, decades ago. I believe that was in the 70s. Um, so that was a good one. You know, I- I've mentioned this book before, one that no one um suggested and i can't remember how exactly i first came about it but i read about it and uh, i read it years ago and, and wrote about it a little for milb.com but there's a pitcher named i don't i've still talking about me and not being able to pronounce last names a pitcher named steve fire ovid fire ovid f-i-r-e-o-v-i-d i've never heard his name say out loud huh. i remember he's in the 87 top set so i remember him um, having a baseball career. He's a journeyman reliever, spent more time in the minors uh, than the majors. And the title of his book reflects that, The 26th Man. And um, I always have liked this book. He wrote it in 1996. It covers his career. But The 26th Man speaks to you know, a career where you're just constantly going up and down, spending a lot of time in AAA, 
uh, getting the majors, getting released, you know, signing on with a new team, getting an unexpected call of the majors, and oh, no, back, you know, and just chronicling that in a really, I thought, you know, perceptive, empathetic, intelligent way. And remember, there's one anecdote in that book um, where he's pitching in Mexico and he had one of the best starts of his life. And he talks about how, you know, despite how he's not a household name, despite how he's the 26th man, after that one night in Mexico, he's like, you know what? Today, all over the world, I was the best pitcher in the world. Like I had the best performance of anyone who got on a mound today. And I just really liked that. That is really cool way to think about it. You know, it's not, it was like winter league. It's not during the major league season and just being like, no one was better than me tonight. And uh, that's just like a cool thing. And I think a cool, a cool way to think, you know, not to be arrogant, but to think about, you know, what we all do. And it's easy to be like, what am I doing? Or, you know, I'm, I'm not good at it, but just think about the specifics of what you do how you do it. And then every once in a while, be like, you know what? No one did this as well as me, this specific thing. And, uh, you know, none of us can say at any given moment, we were the best player in baseball on a given day, even if it was in the Mexican winter league. But I think that it's always his way of thinking about that always stuck with me. And to the point I'm even talking about it now, Steve, I shouldn't pronounce your last name correctly, but I really don't know. Fire Ovid. I kind of want to make the, the fire Ovid prize a thing now in the minor leagues every night and just look at like, I, I guess you could determine it by game score or something, but you know, like every night there is some pitcher in the minor leagues who yeah. is somebody who just like shoved shoving. Yeah. Yeah. And d- did it at a level, at least statistically better than anybody in the majors too. Yeah. I mean, we, we could come up with that in some way. That would be a fun stat. Um, it could be some, it could be Justin Verlander going eight shutout innings, something like that. It, it could be a major league guy, but every once in a while, it's going to be somebody in the South Atlantic league or the Carolina league or the California league, some 18 year old kid who struck out 11 over six, no hit innings. And he was the best statistical pitcher of that day. I really like that thought. I like that idea. That is pretty cool. Um, well, I'm going to go dig for my copy of bottom of the 33rd and, uh, Benjamin Hill, you can find on the internet many places at Ben's biz on Twitter. He's at the Ben's biz on Instagram. And of course, MILB.com slash fan slash Ben's biz as well. And um, thanks, man. Looking forward to, uh, to your draft selections next week. Yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah. I got to, uh, you know, Hey, got to be ready until they're all released and uh, do some analysis, but um, I'm looking forward to that as well. Analysis. You already have your four, first four <laughs> picks lined up. <laughs> Maybe it's maybe it's not. just going to come down to is, is are Tyler and I going to steal them? Yeah, which is always my biggest point of pride is when Sam and I do a draft together and I steal something that Sam was going to pick the pick before I grab you know and then you Adley have to edit Rutschman out all of my verses. Yeah. <laughs> the strings of expletives he just lets them fly in his fit of rage. Um, yeah, so like be it. on the lookout for that, Ben. I will. And I like when Sam curses because it's like really anachronistic. I think a lot of it is not actually curses anymore. It's kind of like 18th century curse. Old fuddle duddy. Yeah. Like, whoa. Somebody Sam, in 1876 easy. is very offended. I just said this. <laughs> easy, Sam. Jeez Louise. This guy's going nuts over here. See, Jeez Louise is one of them. Yeah, that's, right. yeah, that's, that's, that's a fair point. That's a fair point. That would uh, would have turned somebody off from this podcast. Well, I never going to write to my representative in Congress, whose name will start with an initial, and then uh, H. Fishman Cottitude. <laughs> Sending my letter now. All right, obviously we've had enough. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Ben. Thanks, guys.
Sam, our interview subject this week. Give us the lowdown. <laughs> I was supposed to join you yesterday, and I got confused on time zones because we've been doing this for seven years, and I am still a complete idiot. Uh, but please, we're headed to the Texas Rangers system. We are headed to the Texas Rangers system. Uh, Grant Wolfram, a left-handed pitching prospect from the Texas Rangers system, just came off six weeks in the Arizona Fall League, was good enough to pitch in the Fall Stars game. So it was a very solid six weeks for Grant in the Arizona Fall League. Uh, He was also in the news this week because he is Rule 5 eligible. The Rangers did not add him, but he is a potential Dark Horse Rule 5 candidate. So we get into that a little bit. Uh, This is my discussion here with Grant Wolfram. Well, we're very excited this week on the show before the show to be joined by Rangers pitching prospect Grant Wolfram, who's just coming off a trip to the Arizona Fall League. Grant, first off, thanks so much for joining us. Yeah, thank you. Thanks for having me. Yeah, of course. And let's talk a little bit about the Fall League. You just got back. You're in Michigan now, your home state. Um, You just got back from the AFL. Take us through that experience. What were these last six weeks like for you? Yeah, I mean, it's uh, definitely... uh, was an awesome experience. You know, you, the first thing when you get there, you, you unpack and you're in the, the major league locker room. I don't know if all teams do that. I was hearing rumors that not every single team gets to be in the major league locker room. So we were one of the fortunate teams to, to be in the Royals camp there. Um, and that's just, that's just a pretty cool feeling. You know, it feels like you're a lot closer to the big leagues when you walk into a locker room. That's just, just beautiful on the inside, you know, and everyone treats you like a big leaguer. So I would say just from day one, um, you know, I, I think it just helps your confidence walking into that locker room and being around the guys that you see that you're always playing against in every league. Like I played a, a ton of those guys in low A and high A and then a few guys this year in double A. And it's it's pretty cool because you notice those guys specifically because they're typically the 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 best players on the other team. And and then you all come together on one team. I'm like, all right, we're going to be pretty good in the in this fall league. So. I like your chances. Um, and, uh, you know, just being able to be around those guys, learn from all those guys is just, will take your game to the next level. So it was, it was a lot of fun for me. It was a great experience. Yeah. I mean, the, the fall league, there's many ways to approach it, right? It, it can be a way to show off your stuff. It can be a way to fine tune at the end of the season. How do you feel like you grew as a pitcher? Like what it was something you were doing there at the end that you weren't doing, you know, six weeks ago in back in October. Yeah, I think, um, you know, just the, the overall level of uh, the lineups and the hitters, I think um, it just gave me a lot of confidence because, you know, you like I played a few of those guys from the Twins and stuff in, in the Texas League and um, the Diamondbacks. And, you know, a lot of those guys were hitting three, four in those lineups. And then all of a sudden they're hitting, you know, seven, eight, nine. It's like, OK, there's really no break in the lineup. Um so I think it just it just gave me a lot of confidence that, you know, the whole lineup was stacked and to go get go out there and, you know, get outs every time every outing was was just a huge confidence boost. And uh, uh, just kind of just wanted to keep going where I ended the season in double A. So it felt really good to do that. Yeah. Let's, let's just go over your numbers real quick for people at home listening who don't know exactly how you did it the, in the AFL. Nine and two thirds innings. You struck out 13, only walked two, gave up two earned runs limited hitters to a 147 average you're usually mixing in a mid-90s fastball and and a mid-80s slider um but in terms of results I mean 
what do you feel like was working best against those guys? You mentioned having some experience like in Austin Martin or Edouard Julien, who you faced yeah. in the Texas League. But in terms of stuff, what do you feel like was playing best? Um, in terms of stuff, I would just say uh, being able to land my slider a lot behind in counts. If I would get behind those guys, you know, typically they're just sitting dead red heater. And to be able to land some of my off-speed pitches, uh, you know, in a 2-1 count or 2-0 count and just kind of work work behind like that, um, I think think was a big difference maker for me. It just would like – I remember one specific uh, at-bat, for example, was against Jordan Walker, and that dude just crushes baseballs, you know. So it's just like I, the only way I'm going to get a heater in is if I can make him think, you know, that th- – think twice, you know, before I, th- I throw the fastball. So I was like – remember I fell behind him, threw a couple uh, off-speed pitches, 3-1, three, 3-2, one, three, and um, – I think it just, and then I threw a fastball three, two, and I kind of, it got, he still hit it pretty hard, but um, he just missed it just enough where I, where I got out. So I think just that little hint of shred of doubt that I, I may have put in his mind um, in that at bat specifically, um, I think was, was a huge learning point for me, you know, especially with very quality hitters like him and Julian and all those guys. So yeah. Yeah, I think that's that's a perfect example. I'm sure a lot of guys in the fall league were asking to save baseballs after getting Jordan Walker. <laughs> yeah, yeah, for sure. Makes a lot of sense. And, you know, we're getting you at a good time, too. You know, we were talking about the fall league just ending, but surprise, the team you were on won a title on Saturday. That's actually the second championship of the year for you. You pitched in both clinchers. You pitched in Saturday's game and back in Frisco when they won the Texas League title. You pitched in the clincher in that. What is it like coming out of the bullpen into a game like that? Because on Saturday, you pitched in the 8th and ninth. It was a tied game at that point. The game went into extra innings. You passed the baton. What is going through your mind as you're coming in with, you know, a ring on the line, essentially? Yeah, um, so it was kind of funny um, in the the Texas League in that, in that championship for us. I think I came in with – it was either one out or no outs with first and second in like the seventh or eighth inning. So I was like, well, dang, you know, and their, their starter was just, he was just shoving, you know? So we, we, and everyone in the bullpen was like, we just need to keep it here. We need to keep it here. Once the starter gets out, we're going to, we're going to take the lead. We know it. So I was just kind of, you know, I was pretty calm in that game. I just felt, I felt calm. I've been in those situations before all year. And I was just like, you know what, execute, execute my pitches, get, get some outs, just limit the damage here. And, uh, and then just give our guys an opportunity to win the game. And we end up clawing back and winning the game there. And then when I when they put me in uh, in the fall league game, it was bases loaded two outs with Noel, Noel V. Marte up to bat, you know. And I was like, dang, this is a big spot too. It was tight tie game. And um, I threw an off-speed pitch. Um, I can't remember if – I think he either – I think he might have took it. And um, I think the pitching coach wanted another slider like – in the dirt or something, just an off-speed pitch. And I, I shook to a heater and he, he, he got a good piece of, piece of it, but our center fielder made a great play. And uh, so I got out of that jam too. And then I think the next inning got a couple outs and walked a guy. And then we ended up getting out of there and, and winning the game and extras. But um, yeah, I think just in terms of coming into a game like that, it's just something I've, I've been really trying to stay disciplined on and controlling my breathing and, uh, just believing in myself. Once I grab the ball, it's, it's go time. You know, it's me versus the hitter. And I know I got better stuff and that's just my mentality when I step out on the mound every time in a situation like that. So. 
Yeah, and that, that's interesting to hear you talk about that change in mentality because you were somebody who made a good amount of starts last year in 2021 coming off the pandemic. This year, you move more full-time into a relief role. What was that like for you having to kind of switch gears? Yeah, um, uh, man, is, is switch role. I mean, the, the main thing was just, uh, you know, getting, getting loose and getting warmed up. Um, as a starter, you kind of gradually just – have time you know you kind of you already have a set time when you're going to go out on the field when you're going to play start playing catch and all that and it's just kind of like what you do every day you know in terms of before the game a throwing program and you just kind of incorporate that as a starter um so and then when you're a relief pitcher um you just you all of a sudden hey wolfram get hot or wolfram get going and it's like oh man you know so you gotta kind of figure out what works for you. I typically throw a few plyo balls before I get on the mound just to get my shoulder and arm um, loose, maybe some bands. Um, I'm constantly like stretching or, you know, just trying to stay loose, maybe a little dynamic real quick. And then, um, you know, I stand up on the mound with like a power stance and then I I let it go. So that's, that's just my little routine. Um, I I feel like there wasn't really much of a difference other than just like the tempo that you got to work at out of the pen um between starting and then I, I like both so whatever the the rangers want me to do i'm i'm willing to do both you know so yeah and, and just going back to your stuff again with that fastball slider being so good how do you feel like they ticked up when you were working in shorter stints yeah i think uh it definitely my fastball ticked up as far as the velo um consistently uh, i was just able to like you know just not really think too much about like as much as the location as where I want to throw is rather just attack the zone, you know, in my best stuff. Um, so I think that just that in general was uh, something that, that, that helped me coming out of the pen, you know, just my sh- stuff was a little sharper because I could just kind of empty the tank, you know, if I knew I was going to go one or two innings. So that, that was nice. And I, I felt great. Felt my body felt great all year and, I was just happy to be healthy all year and be able to pitch when, when my name was called. So, yeah, yeah. You were one of the, you know, it's, I feel like a lot of pitchers get sent to the fall league to make up for lost time. That wasn't the case for you. It was just adding on experience. Um, One thing I want to touch on too, when you're talking about filling up the zone, you know, you struck out 71 batters this year in 57 innings with Frisco, but you also walked 43. And I want to visit, a quote that you gave to the Holland Sentinel back in Michigan. It was, quote, I struggled with command. It was more mental. I ended up getting a sports psychologist, and that has really helped me get back on track. I feel like it has changed my career, really. And I I find that really interesting. I think so many times people get into mechanical changes and not mental changes in terms of command. What what exactly worked for you going that route? Um, What worked for me was it was just, you know, all my my physical – I guess attributes you could say on the mound and how my body felt and uh, data like spin below all that stuff. It was like the highest it's ever been. So I knew it wasn't physical or like even watching videos, like sometimes, you know, like I look good out there. Like I'm, I'm moving well, I'm moving the way I want to move. The ball's just not going where it was. And I knew it was mental because I'd get out there and I'd either speed up a little bit in my head. I was putting too much pressure on myself trying to, to, to do well, you know, because everyone says double A is kind of like a spot where you make it and they're like quality hitters compared to the big leagues and stuff like that. So I think I was just thinking a little too much. Um, ended up getting a guy that was um, 
through one of my old coaches that he went to high school with, who's worked with a ton of big leaguers and stuff, um, and, and professional golfers and, um, and, uh, just started working with him and developed a really good relationship. I felt like, and, uh, he just got me back on track, you know, gave me, gave me things and points of, uh, interest that works for me in my life, uh, every day that I need to focus on just mentally. And, uh, once I started doing that, I, I started to gain more confidence and, uh, yeah, started throwing really well and just, uh, stuck to it and stayed disciplined in the work I was doing mentally, um, away from the field. And then, uh, when I got to the field as well, so yeah, it worked out really good. Yeah. And when, when did it feel like that really locked in? Was it middle of the season? Was it late in the season? Like, when did it feel like this routine you were developing with the sports psychologist really was working for you? Yeah, I'd say, um, honestly, it felt like it was pretty immediate once I started talking to him. So probably around early, early June, I'd say, um, there was one specific outing, um, in Amarillo that I came in late and that was like one of the games that I, they kind of gave me an opportunity, um, you know, I was struggling a little bit there and uh, had some good good outings, but it was kind of like up and down. And then that particular outing that they put me in and uh, I threw really well and I kind of just gained confidence from there. And then I started, you know, pitching later in the back end of games and even s- saved a few games, too. Hmm. So that was a lot of fun. Yeah. yeah, I feel like pitching in Amarillo is is difficult under any circumstances. So. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's a tough place. Yeah. And and, and I guess let's just actually touch on that real quick as a pitcher pitching in the Texas league. I mean, people know about the California league as being really hitter friendly or the PCL, but I feel like the Texas league is developing a reputation for that, especially when you have to go to Amarillo. What is it like as a pitcher trying to pitch in some of those locations? Yeah. I just remember, you know, the joke with a lot of, a lot of guys on the team were like, all right, how many weeks we got until Amarillo? Uh, (laughs) We got to get our ERAs down before we head there. You know, it's pretty, pretty funny that everyone's kind of on the same page with that. Um, Yeah. I mean, just that place is just, you know, you see balls leave the yard at just an absurd amount, you know, it's just like some games, it's just a weird place. You know, you're up by seven and you know, you blink and all of a sudden you're down by two. It's like, what just happened? You know? Um, yeah. Some of the, some of the parks are just, the ball flies pretty good, especially with the big league balls that we were using there. Um, but I mean, I, I just think, you know, if you execute and uh, put the pitches where you want to put the pitches and just attack hitters, it's, it's kind of, you know, it, it's, you gotta be a little more cautious, I think, but you can't, you can't get too, too scared to pitch in a place like that. Otherwise you will, you will miss make mistakes and um it'll hurt you so yeah yeah and and you mentioned you know kind of jokingly that you guys were all saying we need to get our era in a good place (laughs) before amarillo but does the organization isolate those stats at all and just say like hey we can kind of just put these off to the side because we know they're in a windy high elevation place whatever they are just what they are or you know do you just fold them in with everything else um, yeah, I, I, I never had a conversation about that. I'm sure the data guys do something of that nature, especially with, you know, launch angles and exit velos and stuff like that to determine if it's like a, an actual home run or, or what it may be, you know, but, um, 
yeah, I'm, I'm sure they have their own little way around that. I, I mean, as pitchers, you know, it's a home run, it's a home run. I know a lot <laughs> of guys are just like, you know, it stinks that you have to go pitch there, but right. you look at, you look across the diamond and, uh, some of those guys, it's like they're pitching there all the time and they got like seven, eights, you know, and then you see a guy with a five and you're like, dang, this guy must be a pretty good pitcher, you know? So, um, yeah, it's pre- pretty, that place is, that's a pretty fun place to play. Honestly, like, I, it's not like fun, but it's, it's a good atmosphere. The crowd gets into it. We always have like this water battle with uh, Ruckus, their mascot there before, uh, right. before the game. So, yeah, that's, that's pretty fun too. But, yeah, and you were talking about data before too, in terms of knowing that all your stuff was there. It was just you know a mental issue that you were trying to overcome. Um, mm-hmm. What data do you look at in between outings or over a month's time or something like that to determine what's working and what doesn't work? Yeah, um, I would say the few that I that I look at personally um, is um, race of two strikes, how fast I can get to two strikes, um, and then just the shape of, uh, my fastball and slider, um, just to make sure they're staying consistent, like right where I want them, you know, as far as like vertical break and stuff like that. And, uh, just making sure I'm staying behind the, the baseball when I'm throwing my four seam and then, uh, having the slider just movement metrics, uh, the, the movement profile, the way I want it as well. Um, when I start to see it, like certain things, like maybe too much gyro or too much sweep, I kind of in between the two, um, then I'm, I'm like happy with that. And then, uh, the heater, I just don't want to cut it or, and I don't really want to sink it. I just want to have a true back spun heater. So. Hmm. Yeah. And with that slider in particular, you said you don't want it to have too much gyro, too much sweep. So what yeah. is that sweet spot? What is it when it's exactly um, got the I, shape you ideally, want? Ideally, if I could like put, put down on a piece of paper, like what my slider would be, I would say like zero to six, zero mm-hmm. to seven in my mind, you know? So that's what I'm, what, that's what I'm shooting for. But Gotcha. Gotcha. And, you know, we are also getting you at an interesting time this week coming off the fall league um, because 40 man decisions had to be made yesterday. You are rule five eligible this year. Texas didn't add you to the 40 man. But what was your day like yesterday, knowing that the 6 p.m. Eastern deadline was kind of looming? Yeah, yeah, I was I mean, there's always a a thought, you know, you're like, man, I, I pitched pretty good. There there, there could be a chance. Um uh, yeah. And then ultimately it just didn't happen, but that that's okay. Um, I'm going to be in a good spot heading into next season. And, um, yeah, I mean, it, it's, uh, it's really cool to see a lot of the, the guys I played with this year get added, you know, like Acuna. Um, he, I mean, he's a great player. And then, uh, I played with Zach Kent a few years and he's a great pitcher and Dustin Harris, all those guys are, are really good dudes. Owen White and Cole Wynn, they're both in my draft too. And, um, yeah, it's really cool seeing those guys added. So yeah, it's, it's awesome, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And how much was that on your mind during the fall league? I mean, I feel like the fall league was an opportunity for you to, you know, try out, maybe not try out, but like show off mm-hmm. why you are deserving of a 40 man spot. And it went really well. You were on the fall stars team, all that stuff. Yeah. Um, how much were you thinking about that during your six weeks in surprise? Um, honestly, I wasn't thinking about it too much during the the time I was, uh, just playing and being on there. I was just trying to enjoy it and just, uh, continue every day, be consistent and be the best pitcher I can be every day. Um, and then after, you know, it was kind of like, 
once the season was done, I was like, oh, okay, you know, I can, some of those off season things start to creep in my mind. And I, I thought about it a little bit, you know, and I was like, oh, there's, there's a good chance that it could happen. But, um, you know, in the same breath, you never know what, what, what the, my journey is and where my road leads. So, yeah. Yeah. Well, now that you are, you know, eligible for the rule five draft, it's possible a team could come take you and put you on the major league roster. What do you feel like no. you proved to potential rule five clubs during the time of the AFL? Yeah, I think, uh, you know, it's just, um, for other, for other teams, it's just like, you know, Hey, I'm six, eight lefty, uh, <laughs> you know, come out of the pen. I feel like I, I got some good stuff. I got, uh, good fastball, good slider, good breaking ball. Um, you know, I've pitched as a starter, reliever, long relief, close, set up. I uh, feel like I, I can do anything on the baseball field that you want as far as a pitcher. So, um, yeah, I feel feel confident, feel really good right now with where I'm at in my career. And, uh, yeah. All right, well, let's get this on the record because you just said this. You said six foot eight. Your player yeah. page says six foot six. Is that yeah, something you're trying right. to get corrected? Okay. Yeah, that's not right. Yeah, I'm six eight. I was six six. Uh, that that stuff. They finally got my weight right. I think it said like I don't know. I'm like two forty five, but they had like two thirty or something like that for years, and then they said six six. I think I was six six my senior year of high school. So <laughs> yeah, I grew grew a few inches after that. But, well, yeah, to those of us who are right around six feet, I mean, at six, six versus six, eight, it doesn't matter, but I'm sure yeah. you it does. So any yeah. rule five clubs out there looking for a six, eight giant on the mound, you know where to find one. Uh, <laughs> for sure. and, and Grant, you were just telling us before you got a busy off season coming up. You got a wedding coming up. Like yep. what is this off season going to be like for you uh, on top of potentially rule five? Yeah. Um, I mean, just, it's going to be, I'm just going to treat it as the same, you know, um, obviously the plan for the wedding and stuff that will be, will be different. Um, I'll have that, but I mean, that's all exciting, good things in my life that me and, uh, my fiance are really excited about. So, um, yeah, I'm just gonna just keep preparing, get stronger, you know, maybe add another tick to the, the fastball, uh, just stay sharp and, um, yeah, just get ready for next year whether it's with the Rangers or someone else, if I was to get picked up, but you know, I'm going to just, just prepare the same way I prepare every season. So. Very cool. All right. Well, whether it's in surprise at the Rangers complex or somewhere else in Arizona, or maybe even Florida, uh, we're looking <laughs> back to, we're looking forward to seeing you back out there in the spring. Uh, Grant Wolfram pitcher in the Texas Rangers system. Thanks so much for joining us this week on the show before the show. Yeah. Thank you. Appreciate it. Big thanks to the Texas Rangers, Grant Wolfram, for joining the show on this week's episode. And uh, with that, we're like fully into the offseason because where Grant spent six weeks, the Arizona Fall League is done for 2022. Another fun season in the AFL. And uh, congratulations to the surprise Sawaros who uh, knocked off the Glendale Desert Dogs in the Arizona Championship League, the Arizona Championship League, the Arizona Fall League Championship game. There we go. Those are words that make sense. Uh, and did so in extra innings. Uh, 11 innings it took for surprise to knock off Glendale. And uh, Sam, you spent so much time, got a chance to to see so much in the AFL this year. That championship game was a fun one. Uh, your thoughts on this? Uh, well, first on the title for surprise, but also just on the AFL season at large. Yeah. So, yeah, let's start with the title game for surprise. We talked a little about 
about this with Grant in the last segment. So if you listen to that, you are, you already knew that surprise won uh, and that he pitched in the game, uh, did not get the win or anything. But again, you know, pitching in the eighth, ninth, pretty big deal in a championship game uh so good for him surprise was the regular season champ as well so you know even though this was a one game format um there's some good justice in that and the fact that they won i thought it was pretty funny that scott schreiber walked it off for surprise considering he's a houston astros prospect as if the astros needed more good news in november in a championship game format um scott schreiber is the one who walked it off hit a ball to the left center probably would have been a double uh goes down in the book as a single but walk off single in the 11th inning surprise never led in the game until the the 11th uh which was fascinating it was 4-4 going into the 10th both teams traded runs in the 10th so we go to the 11th glendale goes up again 6-5 surprise comes back and scores two runs in, in the bottom of the 11th and they walk off as winners 7-6 so congrats to them uh if you look at the fall league as a whole zooming way way out here uh it was again a hitters league that's been a theme the last few years uh it we really saw hitters thrive like Jordan Walker, obviously the top prospect in the fall league definitely led up to the hut or lived up to the hype. Other guys stood out like Zach Veen was the offensive player of the year after being an absolute menace on the base pass. When you, normally when you think offensive player, you think a guy who's going to hit a bunch of home runs that wasn't Zach Veen's game in the fall league, but every team time he got on base, it looked like he was itching to go. That's just always been his skill set in the minor leagues. Um, I believe he had the highest stolen base total in the fall league since 2011. So it's been a while since somebody was as aggressive on the base pass as Zach Bean was. Kudos to him. Heston Kerstad was the MVP, uh, which is a major deal for him because he missed all the 2021 season due to myocarditis, was still dealing with some of those effects. This year, slowly coming back, um, wasn't looking quite up to his previous level as a, such a high pick for the Orioles uh, this year at IA Aberdeen. And I think he equaled his home run total at Aberdeen in the fall league. Again, it's a hitters league. You guys are going to thrive there, but he looked great. The power was really playing. Um, he was a real threat to pull the ball and drive it deep to right at any time he was playing. Um, he looked supremely confident as well. So it was really good to see him just healthy, but also so productive that he became MVP. Matt Mervis uh, tied for the league lead in home runs with six. Uh, that's a big deal for him because he was using the fall league as a potential launching pad to join the Cubs coming out of next spring. Uh, he had such a long season playing at three different levels, was in the minor league home run chase for much of the summer. The fact that he then carried that into the fall and led that league in home runs as well was special. Um, it, yeah, when you look back, it's pop-up guys like Edouard Julien, who was the breakout prospect of the year. Uh in, in the Arizona Fall League. Twins prospect, second baseman, led the Texas League in OBP coming into the year, but showed more slugging ability. And I think that's a big deal for him is, you know, can he be somebody who's more than just patient? Can he drive the ball when he makes contact? He showed it in the league itself, not so much in the home run derby where he was widely outmatched. Um, but if as long as it plays in games, that's the important bit. And he certainly showed that. Austin Martin looked great collecting hits and, and keeping things moving on, on the base pass with 10 plus steals. Uh, again, another twins prospect. So if you're looking at pitchers, yeah, there were guys like Joey Wentz, who was three scoreless starts uh, before he was bounced for Salt River. Connor Thomas added a cutter 
and led the league in strikeouts. That was a major deal. Evan Reifert of the Tampa Bay Rays uh, didn't give up a hit until his final final outing uh, as a reliever for Mesa. Uh, struck out, I want to say, 62.5% of the batters he faced with a mid-90s fastball and a really high-spin slider. Uh, he's becoming somebody who's on the radar in a deep Tampa Bay system. So, yeah, I mean, it, you look back on it and you're like, okay, there were a lot of offensive standouts and all of that, but the guys who did stand out, I think are going to really use this opportunity moving forward. And we're going to see many of them potentially as early as next year. I mean, you look at Bryson Stott was in the Arizona fall league last year and was in the world series this year. It's very possible. Um, so it was another fun fall league campaign to wrap up for sure. So strike two this week in our, uh, modified three strikes, let's say, uh, the end of the Arizona fall league always comes slightly before a major deadline in the uh, prospect community, which is the deadline to add prospects to a team's 40-man roster in order to protect them from the Rule 5 draft, which is coming up uh, in the beginning of March. And every year, there's a selection of top prospects that get added uh, to Major League 40-man rosters. There are some surprises of guys who maybe are added um, unexpectedly, and always a lot of surprises of guys who are left off of those lists uh, perhaps unexpectedly as well. Sam, give us the breakdown of what stood out to you about who got added and who didn't. There's one specific player who we're going to talk about next, um, but obviously a lot of top 100 guys factor into this and some other ones. Yeah, let, let's hold that that other guy for strike three and just some surprise picks we'll discuss here in uh, another segment. But in terms of who got added at the 40-man deadline, it was Tuesday, 6 p.m. Eastern time. Uh, you have to be Rule 5 eligible and added to your 40-man to be protected from the Rule 5 draft. Rule of thumb on that, if you signed when you were 18 years or younger, you have five years in pro ball, five seasons in pro ball, I should say. If you signed when you were 19 or older, it's four seasons in pro ball. Um, so the guys who were added, all top 100 prospects who were eligible were added. No surprise there. We're talking about Grayson Rodriguez, Diego Cartaya, Ellie De La Cruz, Marco Luciano, Noel V. Marte, Taj Bradley, Curtis Mead, Michael Bush, Brennan Davis, Owen White, Andy Pajes, or Elvis Martinez, Kevin Alcantara, Sedan Rafaela, and Andy Rodriguez. So 15 for 15 on the top 100 front. Um, there were some other various su surprises of guys who weren't protected and will be eligible for the Rule 5 draft. I was digging a little bit into the data uh, of the last five rule five drafts, 75%, roughly 75% have been pitchers. Wow. So people use the rule five draft basically to supplement your bullpen, which makes sense, right? Like you can never have enough usually, pitching. Yeah. You never have enough pitching. It's usually the back end of the bullpen that you could use a little help in. Sometimes you're grabbing a starter who could be a long man. Um, but whose stuff could play up in shorter stints if he's jumping from, say, double A or high A. Um, so I thought, you know, when looking at who didn't get protected, one name that stood out to me was Antoine Kelly of the Texas Rangers, uh, the number 13 prospect in the Rangers system. Kelly was acquired this year from the Brewers. Um, super tall guy, another tall guy after we talked to Grant Wolfram, uh, with a really good fastball and a really good slider. The walks really killed him at double A after the move to the Texas Rangers system. Maybe that scared the Rangers away. Uh, maybe they thought, hey, nobody's going to touch this guy because they we're just not sure if he can throw strikes. But if he can, all he needs is the fastball and slider. Like a lot of people think he's probably going to be a reliever someday, anyways. If you're a rule five club looking at like, hey, we could use a lefty out of the pen, you do a lot worse than Antoine Kelly for a 
very small risk. You just return them and, you know, lose a, a little bit of money for taking him in the rule five draft. It's not the end of the world. Like I, I would definitely take a look at him. Uh, another guy who I thought was interesting was for the Kansas city Royals. Um, another guy that they acquired this midseason. So normally when you see somebody acquire a player who's going to be rule five eligible, you're not going to risk losing them this quickly. TJ Sycama, number 16 prospect from the Kansas city Royals. He was acquired in the Andrew Benintendi deal uh, just before the deadline. TJ Sikma pitched a little bit in the fall league. Um, again, another guy who really struggled at double A after the move uh, from the Yankees to the Royals. Maybe that was part of the reason why. But, I, you know, I think the stuff is certainly there. You look at Alec Marsh, who they did protect, who I think ceiling is higher, but he's had just as many struggles as TJ Sikma has at the upper levels. A little surprising for me on, on that front. Um, but again, TJ Sikma better chance to start. So maybe a little bit tougher to stuff in that bullpen. I'll give you one name of a uh, position player who I, I would watch ahead of the rule five draft. Tampa Bay Rays had a 40 man roster crunch. They do every year. They're not going to be able to prote- protect every prospect. They had to make some moves. They traded Xavier Edwards. Um, they traded Brett wisely. They traded miles master like guys who were on the 40 man periphery who either had to be added or were currently on the 40 man, they dealt away for guys who they won't have to deal with uh, for rule five purposes for a few years. But Herberto Hernandez, the outfielder, uh, their number 17 prospect for the Tampa Bay Rays, they left him unprotected. And I I know what I just said about it mostly being pitchers and you really have to really have to be a special outfielder to be picked. I don't know if Hernandez is that, but Everything we've heard about him dating back to his days with the Texas Rangers, and he was included in the Nate Lowe deal from a few years back, um, is that he has exceptional exit velocities. When he hits the ball, it's really hard. He hits it hard to a lot of different places in the ballpark. Uh, It's you know raw power that could play in the majors right now, and I think he would be a good long-term play for a lot of teams. Now, are you going to be willing to stash him for a year and make him your fourth or fifth outfielder. I don't know about that. He's had some struggles, especially when it comes to strikeouts. And that usually doesn't translate well. But you can't teach strength like that. You either have it or you don't. He definitely has it. Uh, and he's one name I will just be keeping an eye on because I bet if the Rays had extra spot or two, they probably would have protected him. The Rule 5 draft, by the way, not just confusing to you and me as uh... – you know, people who work in baseball, ultra confusing to you and me prior to our time working in baseball as baseball fans. It can also be confusing to players. This is one of my favorite stories. Uh, Ryan Roland Smith, the former uh, Mariner and D-back and uh, my my color analyst on the World Baseball Classic Qualifier broadcast uh, last month and in September. Uh, Ryan at one time was taken by the Minnesota Twins in the Rule 5 draft. And he said he got a call from Terry Ryan. He was home in Australia got a call it was from a minnesota number and this is like back in the early 2000s when it's like well that's weird what what could this possibly be about and he answers and uh and terry ryan says uh ryan this is is terry ryan i'm the general manager of the minnesota twins we just took you in the rule five draft and ryan said oh okay uh what's the rule five draft (laughs) so don't worry if you're confused on it sometimes those guys are confused too um but one of my favorite stories i'll do another one kind of similar to that real quick was a few years ago uh, the Red Sox selected Josh Rutledge. I don't know if you remember this. Yes. Uh, in the Rule 5 draft. But it was fascinating because he, they had him at the end of the year. 
And then he became a minor league free agent and he signed with the Rockies, I believe. But yes. the Rockies didn't add him to the 40 man because he was a minor league free agent. There, there's no threat of that. And then the Red Sox were just like, no, actually, we yeah, do we'll want to take him so, back. Yeah, we're, we'll take him back. But also, he has to be on the major league roster now. Right. And I talked to him that spring and he was just like, yeah, I mean, they could have just signed me. I, I would gladly come back. Like, <laughs> they didn't need to do all this, this stuff. But it, it was just one of those instances where I bet there were some meetings and then somebody panicked of like, oh, no, we had a guy who could have helped us in this regard. And we didn't we should probably get this guy back. Yeah. And yeah. I, I don't think he stuck. Like there were all sorts of issues with that. But another thing that stood out to me in having that conversation, he said he was on a cruise with his wife. <laughs> I think it was like on his honeymoon or something. And he was just like, Oh, we, I got a call and I guess I'm going back to Boston. That's what, how it went down. And I was like, all right, that's cool. And then it hit me years later. His wife is Laura Rutledge, right? The ESPN football, like, you know, she's on all sorts of football shows for ESPN. So um, that was pretty neat, but yeah, it, even when we think, oh, do I have this figured out? Am, am yeah, we're getting it right. We got even this players. all figured out. Yeah, even even the players sometimes don't. Um, so with that, we're going to move on to uh, our final topic, which is one uh, very surprising name that was added to a 40-man roster uh, ahead of the Rule 5 draft here in 2022. That is former first-round draft selection, Riley Pint, who was taken with the fourth overall selection in the 2016 Major League Baseball first-year player draft by the Colorado Rockies. Riley Pint has had uh, an odyssey in professional baseball, to say the least. Uh, He briefly retired, came back to the Rockies organization, reached AAA Albuquerque last year, uh, was sporting a a very impressive mustache. Uh, Riley Pint, of course, was heavily featured in Jeff Passan's book, The Arm, as being somebody who, uh, you know, was kind of breaking the mold of the single sports specialist that has uh, grown so in vogue, not just in baseball, but really in every sport. Uh, Riley Pine was a guy who played multiple sports and, you know, seemed to be really healthy, was throwing 103 as a high school senior and um, very highly touted, came into the Rockies organization in 2016 and just really, really struggled, uh, especially with his command and especially over uh, the, the stretch that, you really expect a player to kind of establish himself in pro ball. Um, that just didn't happen with Riley Pine. Uh, he got into, into a ball and into high a and just could not figure it out command wise. And his numbers, I mean, were pretty ugly in 2016 numbers that you think like, okay, well, he's, you know, first time in pro ball, he's in rookie ball, but an ERA of 5.35 and 11 games uh, with then rookie level grand junction. He struck out 36. He walked 23. Next year in Asheville, 2-11, and 11, a 5.42 ERA, 93 innings. He struck out 79 and walked 59. Uh, then things really started to fall apart. Uh, health-wise, he just wasn't right and uh, only pitched in four games in pro ball in 2018. Uh, and in those four games, over eight and a third innings, he walked 11 and struck out eight. Came back in 2019, went back to Asheville, was converted to a reliever, came out of the bullpen for 21 uh, for 18 of his 21 appearances. ERA over eight and a half. He walked 31 and struck out 23 in 17 and two-thirds innings. Um, then he retired for a little while. Uh, pitched a bit in 2021, came back in 2022. And, uh, after coming out of his retirement, he announced that retirement in June of 2021, returned in 22 and pitched at double A and at triple A. And he's really a, a 
pretty eye-opening story and a guy who, you know, his numbers last year didn't exactly blow the doors off, but they were so much better uh, than what Riley Pint has done over the first few years of his career. Um, And command-wise, much improved. You know, he made it up to AAA. He only made three appearances at AAA, um, but combined between AA and AAA, 41 relief appearances, struck out 58 and 45 and two-thirds innings, only walked 31. This was uh, a story that, you know, two years ago, if you had said this to somebody, they would have thought, well, that's quite a turnaround for Riley Pint. And that was before he retired and came back. This is a very cool baseball story. Yeah, no, very much so. And it, it it was a shock to the system to see his name added, which I can only imagine what it was like for him. Yeah. Um, but, you know, it, it, again, it's it's proof that in the Rule 5 draft, people like stuff. Like, if you have stuff, we will try to figure out the control later. And Riley Pine has always had stuff. That's not been a concern. It's just, can he throw strikes? He's He showed some steps forward, like you said, in that regard in 2022, um, getting as close as he's ever been to the big leagues. So kudos to him for coming back after retiring. I mean, when he retired, I thought that was the end of Riley Pine. I didn't think we we're going to hear from him again. It's like now Mark he's on Appel. a 40 man roster. You yeah. know, Mark Appel, it's a very similar story, except that Riley right. Pine was a high school guy. Mark Appel was a college guy. But, you know, for Mark Appel, it, it kind of seemed like, oh, this is a guy who knows how much he wants to accomplish outside of baseball. I don't know if we'll ever see him again. Um, and, you know, Riley Pint, uh, similar story in the struggles and, you know, coming back, Mark Appel made his big league debut. We'll see if Riley Pint has something similar, uh, in the offing coming up. Yeah. And there's one name I want to add to this list too, is very similar to both of these guys. John Singleton got added to the Brewers right. 40 man. Roster. Right. And that, another that was another shock to the system because, you know, we were talking about, uh, Rutledge before and how the Red Sox could have just signed him to a minor league deal and kept him around the Brewers just a few weeks ago, signed Singleton, re-signed him to a minor league deal with an invite to big league spring training. Yeah. So obviously they wanted him back. Things worked out and I'll get into why that's special in a second here. But then a few weeks later, they're like, oh, actually we're worried about losing you to the rule five draft. So congrats. Now you're on the 40 man. Um, Big deal for him. John Singleton, you might remember as a prospect in the Astros and Phillies organizations. Uh, a lot of people thought he was going to be the first baseman of the future for the Astros. He made the major leagues at one point, but hasn't been in the big leagues since 2015. He was out of baseball completely in, from 2018 to 2020. Played in Mexico in 2021, so that's not technically affiliated ball, but he was playing baseball last season. Uh, signed a minor league deal with the, the Brewers in the spring. Led all of the minor leagues this year in, in walks with 117 at AAA Nashville. Had 24 homers. That was second most in the Brewer system. So John Singleton is exactly who he always was. Um, some of the reasons he fell out of baseball, there were drug-related suspensions um, that lasted a long time, and there were reasons behind that. Um, but you know, we're seeing some of the stigma change on that. I, I don't know how much that's helped him in that regard, but he can play. Yeah, the guy can take his walks. He can put up a big OBP. He can lug the ball still with the best of them in the minor leagues, uh, at least when it comes to the Brewers system. So kudos to him for getting that opportunity. And again, you know, he's one call away from making the major leagues. And uh, that would be his first time in the major since 2015. Yeah, pretty amazing stories. And uh, yeah, John Singleton's another guy who just has a baseball odyssey. You look at his baseball reference page and it's like, man, that dude is he is chasing this game everywhere and good for him because 
Um, there were a lot of people who had a lot of opinions on John Singleton, and he's a guy who uh, is very easy to cheer for uh, when you look at the fact that he has just not given up on this dream. And uh, so some very interesting names for you to keep an eye on uh, as the year goes along toward uh, opening day in 2023 and see who among these dudes is going to be or be back in the big leagues sometime soon. Um, so that's it for three strikes. Josh Jackson swinging by the show before the show. And we're back to wrap it up on the other side. this podcast to bring you another thrilling edition of Ghosts of the Miners. Now, here's your correspondent and host, Joshua Jackson. Welcome back to Ghosts of the Miners, in which all of you out there in radio land must identify the legitimate historical ball club hiding amidst the fraudulent pair. One of them was the genuine article. The others are fake news. In the last segment, I asked you which of the following minor league baseball teams did at one time exist. A, the Dodge City Sailors. B, the Dallas Submarines. C, the Las Cruces Clippers. Don't be down if you picked a team other than B, the Dallas Submarines. How were you to detect the team named for a marine vessel lurking beneath the landlocked surface of North Texas? But the Dallas Submarines pop up in the historical record for the Texas League of 1920 and 1921. Long represented on the circuit as the Giants, Dallas underwent a big change in adopting a new name in 1919, becoming the Marines, which charted the course to becoming the Submarines. Or maybe it wasn't such a big change, but a wave of informal title shifting. Some sources have the Giants becoming the Marines in honor of the many waterways near Dallas, and then being rechristened the Submarines because of a combination of a round of flooding in the area and the team's underwhelming performance in 1919 and into 1920. But dive into the depths of the archives, and the truth rises like a periscope. The Dallas Club was casually referred to as the Submarines as far back as February of 1970. The origin story of the name may be under the radar, but the Submarines of 20 and 21 were perfectly traceable. Under the leadership of returning veteran skipper Ham Patterson, Dallas piggybacked on the fifth place finish of the 19 Club to be sandwiched in the middle of the pack with a 63 and 85 record. The submarines floated to fourth in 21, but their 81 and 78 mark put them only within 26 and a half games of the Fort Worth Panthers, who were really strutting their stuff with an outrageous offensive campaign from Clarence Big Boy Kraft. And the Dallas Club took after a more sensible Kraft for 22, too, giving the submarines moniker Das Boot to saddle up as the Dallas Steers moving past Peterson with new manager Walter Morris. They still couldn't catch the Panthers, but the Steers finished third and posted an 82-74 and 74 record, aiming higher than the submarines ever hit. And that's how the submarines were decommissioned. Now, on to the question for next time. Which of these clubs tooled around in the minors of yesteryear? A. The Flint Arrows 
B. The Oildale Drills. C. The Hickory Hammers. Want to know the answer? Check the shed. Or tune into the next Ghosts of the Miners. But for now, you'll have to excuse me. My producer Ben Hill is out looking for cranberry sauce, and he's getting quite bogged down. Saying goodbye on this week's episode of the show before the show. Uh, the dog just jumped up on the bed behind me, and I was like, we having an earthquake? What is happening here? Um... MILB.com is where you can find all the latest and greatest about minor league baseball. You can check out our prospect content as well. MLB pipeline. And uh, next week, Sam, it's another big draft. Doesn't have any actual life altering implications on players like the rule five draft does, or maybe it does. I don't know. People could take (laughs) it very seriously. Tee it up for us. I mean, we could be pushing uh, hat sales for some of these teams that we select. So maybe it's life altering in that way, not to pump our own tires. Uh, And I will turn this, as I often do on podcasts, into a podcast meeting. Tyler, how should we do this? Do we want to just choose our four or five favorites or do we want to break it down into categories? Mm -hmm. I feel like categories are a little tougher. Yeah. Yeah. I think categories with this one are kind of tough. Yeah. I think we just go with our favorites. We're just going to go with our. Yeah. Favorites. I I think that's about right. Um, Yeah. But it'll be fun. It'll be a lot of fun to, to dive into this. Like we said at the top of the show, we're probably going to reveal a little bit about our personalities along the way. Um, I will keep the uh, the curses to a minimum. We'll although see. that'll be up to you, Tyler. We'll see about that. Yeah, I, I say that. And then you're going to take somebody and I'm going to be very angry. Just going to block you with every, every pick that I have in front of you. I'm going to read what you're coming up with. Like, oh, he's and going And in true Marvel it. fashion, I will be the Hulk by the end of the podcast. <laughs> There's that. <laughs> so tune yeah. in next week for a special holiday edition of the show before the show podcast. And uh, that'll do it. Uh, big thanks to Grant Wolfram from the Texas Rangers and to Benjamin Hill and Josh Jackson. And for Sam Dykstra, my name is Tyler Mon. We'll catch you next week. 